second episode of Rank and Review. This week we're going to be looking at Plagues and Apocalypse. I've got my friend Jared Berry, who I've known for many years in the theater community in Saskatoon, to come and talk to me about these movies that he was very excited about. Just so you know, if you're going to be listening to this podcast, and if you're a first-timer, we are going to discuss spoilers, much more so than our previous episode, because a lot of our issues with some of the movies had to do with the third act twist, and in order to adequately discuss them, well, we discussed them. So if you haven't seen any of the movies and you don't want any of them spoiled, please, by all means, watch the movies before you listen to the podcast. But definitely, definitely listen to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, and enjoy episode two of Rank and Review. Welcome, Jared Very, uh, I gave you a bunch of lists of movies to think about to do for my show, and thank you so much for saying yes oh, to thank it. thank you. And you told me, quote, you were excited about doing Plague and Apocalypse, yes. which made me smile, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> can you explain to me again why you were excited to do Plague and Apocalypse? Well, it's kind of funny, because first off, I thought that would be the first thing people would try and go for hmm. when you were giving a list, and I was just like, yeah, so... I'm thinking there must be something weird in me thinking that that was going to be the most popular of the choices. <laughs> um, but, I mean, just the idea of Plague and Apocalypse is terrifying. Um, the whole world ending, it leaves you with all these hypothetical scenarios about what you would do at the end of the world and, like, what would you do to survive? Like, what's your contingency plans? And, I mean, it's been around since before the Cold War. People have been dreading the idea of the end, and it's a really popular sort of notion. And I thought, you know... It's a good opportunity to sort of like review some of these like things that they've made in films about this topic mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, talk about our own. I think they ring particularly loudly, obviously, in our post 9 11 world. Yeah. They, you know, we live in fear of terrorist acts and whatnot. Um, the six movies that we are going to rank and review are Contagion by Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, the 1989 film Miracle Mile. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> The Vanishing on 7th Street with uh, Brad Anderson directing. I'm a fan of Brad Anderson. Yeah, I like uh, some of his other work. The uh, Canadian-made, American-produced Divide. Yeah. Uh, uh, another low-budget affair from the excited states called Right at Your Door. And The Road, the Viggo Mortensen adaptation of the Cormac McCarthy novel. Uh, not a date movie in the bunch, really. But no. uh, <laughs> I feel like you missed a couple good ones, though. Well, um, I, we t talked possibly about Outbreak as well, but I only have it on VHS. Well, that That's blind, right, people, blindness. VHS. I have it on VHS. What surprised me is you still have a VHS player. <laughs> <laughs> 
next to my eight track player. Yeah. See, back in my days, we get. <laughs> I like my movies to slowly degrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we have a rich history, Jared, Barry, yes. and I. Um, I met you when you were a teenager. I was working at the dinner theater. I don't know what you were doing. I was, I was, I was doing a few shows at the dinner theater right. here and there. It was kind of funny, though, because uh, Liz and Rob initially were telling me about you, and I'd never met you before. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they're like, oh, you like zombie movies, and you like horror movies. You should meet Larry, and it, they were talking about it as though they wanted to set us up on some sort of a bro dance, like yeah. a bro date, because they're just like, "Why are you two not best friends already?" In the midst of all this chaos, two men fall in love. <laughs> yeah. Well, m- one of my favorite stories about you is that uh, Rob Reynolds, who's also going to be a guest on the show, and I uh, were putting together a play for the Fringe. Very, very, very under the gun as far as time. We were writing and uh, directing and starring in a play, and we had about a little less than three months from concept to execution. And we needed a kid. We needed a young, fresh-faced fellow to be a very put-upon character. Yeah, just got my first pubes. In our play. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you said that you would do it, and that you asked me, you know, if I would help you out with your zombie movie. Yeah. And I said, absolutely, I will help you out with your zombie movie. And I would, because I'll be, I'll, I would happily be in any zombie movie. <laughs> I love to be in zombie movies. But I must confess, Jared, when I agreed to be in your movie, I didn't really have a lot of belief that it was actually going to happen. No one did. <laughs> fast forward, fast forward one year later, yeah. and I'm playing the Duke. <laughs> Named after John Wayne wearing a leather trench coat and a shirt with a thunderbolt on it. So it is very appropriate that you and I tackle the post-apocalyptic yeah. genre since we tackled I, it I once I feel like before. we're in it for life now. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, thanks for doing it. Oh, thank you for being in my movie. <laughs> a lot of these, well, I mean, people would ask, are these strictly speaking horror movies, especially some of the ones like Contagion or, or Miracle Mile? Would you call them a horror movies? But I would say something that's happening on a global scale or potentially on a global scale that's going to affect everybody uh, to the tune of the end of our existence qualifies as a horror movie to me <laughs> and uh like like you were saying with zombies the same sort of thing applies what i dig about the whole world of where romero zombies is that each story we get are just this pocket of survivors this is what happens to these people this is how these people deal with this and this end of day scenarios and there's a bunch of different ones we're going to look at there's weird supernatural ones vanishing on seventh street and there's uh legitimate bombs dropping in a couple of movies and plague and viruses so um some of them hit close to home because they're very real you know yeah people believe either a meteor or a bug took out the dinosaurs so. well and i mean the other thing too is we're so fascinated with uh health problems and especially the idea of these infections and uh these new super flus and things like that that this concept that virus or zombies even like walking dead things like that the concept that a virus or something like that will be able to destroy this world seems like that more like just seems that the more real uh especially when they talk about things like finding new bacteria and icebergs and things like that or they're melting uh all of the stuff being released back in the environment that hasn't been there bodies found up in the cold arctics that may have had spanish flu things like that these concepts become all the more real yeah well and there's a movie sort of on that subject the last winter which we'll talk about in another episode but uh yeah it is, it's 
horrifying. I think it really works a nerve. And even yeah. if they're not, you know, jump out of the dark blue, you know, being stalked by a serial killer horror movies, I think that they work a nerve. And I think that they definitely qualify. Uh, uh, an important work for me, you were talking about reading as a young person. I like Matheson and I like Stephen King. And mm-hmm. Matheson has I Am Legend. Yeah. And Stephen King has The Stand. Uh, which touch on sort of an apocalyptic vision of the future, and I'm big, big fans of both of those books. And they they keep trying to get the not the Charlton right. Heston movie, the Mega Man. Well, Mega we'll, we'll talk about that someday too. Right, not we'll as big in an Omega Man. Yeah, all right, so. well, I'll work on you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's actually another Stephen King short story in one of his more recent collections that concerns a, a bomb dropping on New York City, and he has a little write up about uh, all of the different stories in the book. At the end, you can read a. And he, he he just had this image in his head of this huge mushroom cloud, you know, consuming New York. Yeah. And I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was like something that almost seemed like inevitable. That it, this is something that someday will happen. Maybe not in New York, but some some city is going to get nuked. Yeah. And uh, what the, a lot of these movies are examining is if you were, whether or not you're lucky... To have survived it. Is it better to be at ground zero? I mean, when I was a kid thinking about zombie movies, I, I remember thinking it would be fun to have my own mall and oh, yeah, own little like kingdom. go-karts all yeah, around exactly. the place, right? And, uh, I secure that place and I'll have a ball, I'll kill zombies for fun, and West I'll Edmonton never run mall? out of food. West, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll ride water slides, <laughs> it, electricity day. won't be a problem. I'll live on the pirate ship. <laughs> but, you know, and then you get a little more real world and I'm older now and I have kids, you know. Yeah. I cannot imagine what I, like, this is not a fun scenario at no. all. It's horrifying. Well, uh, and all I think, I'm like, I don't have kids, but I'm like, I just picture like having a cat in one of those baby Bjorns just like walking <laughs> around the city slashing at zombies because yeah. I'm like, well, I have to take it with me, right? Like, I'm responsible for How many for months it. into that <laughs> nuclear holocaust before that cat is dinner, Jared? <laughs> That's my question. I'm pretty sure it'd probably start gnawing on me before. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you want to start talking about some of these movies? Yeah. Let's do it. a groundbreaking ceremony for a new factory. Did she mention seeing anyone who was sick? Anyone on a plane at the airport? No. She said she was jet-lagged. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Beth! No, no, uh, uh, go up to your room, honey. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. You had a seizure this morning, Beth. Is she before? a history of seizures? No, no, no. Allergies? No. As of last night, there were 32 cases. Unfortunately, she did die. Right. Can I go talk to her? Mr. Amos, your wife is dead. So let's start with Contagion. Uh, I, I think it's a good place to start because I guess it's probably the least apocalyptic. I mean, yeah. no large spoilers here, but what we're looking at is how the CDC and the government would deal with an outbreak of a plague. Um, and we see things slowly falling apart over time. It's not like the bombs have already dropped and that everything has already happened. This is a, this is the last ditch effort to, to save it. Um, Steven Soderbergh, I'm a, typically a big fan. I mean, yeah. He runs hot and cold, but when he's hot, he's very hot. And he definitely brings the talent. Well, uh, and, I mean, anytime he makes a film, you're 
gonna go see it regardless because the <laughs> chance that it is one of the good ones right yeah well where do you stand on Soderbergh I, I think for me I put the high level on like the limey out of sight uh, I'm a big traffic fan yeah traffic that is the thing is like I think traffic is gonna be the one that he's just most recognized by for for a lot of people yeah. though and I think yeah uh can't really decide but traffic was pretty awesome I loved Kafka he did that uh, it's like it's that? not an adaptation of any Kafka stories it's basically a Kafka like story starring Kafka himself and Jeremy Irons plays Kafka wow and, uh, most of the movies in black and white it's really cool anyway we're not talking about Kafka we're talking about Contagion, Contagion. Yes. And it's a hard movie to find if you can find that on DVD let me know yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, uh, it's really it's really worth your time uh, yeah Contagion largely concerns itself I, I guess if there's a main protagonist it's Matt Damon yeah, and that's it was just sort of a weak role for him to be. You think? Well, the the thing is, like, I I get the idea of like the protective father and stuff like that, but it was like, uh, m- most of it was just him shutting the door and like you know don't like he was being protective and it was cool, but I still felt like throughout the whole movie they didn't really carry that fear or amp it up after a certain point. Yeah. Like he didn't get more and more paranoid. Well, let's set the stage a little bit here. Yeah. Um, and again, if you haven't seen Contagion, there's going to be some spoilers <laughs> here. There's, it's going to be unavoidable. But basically, Matt Damon's wife, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, comes home from a trip overseas with what seems to be a flu bug. And very quickly, uh, a, a bat, series of deaths happen right on Matt Damon's doorstep. His wife, her son, uh, die almost right away, almost 10, 15 minutes into the movie. And uh, we first see the hospital's reaction to it, then the CDC, then the government's people represented by a a good cast of actors, uh, Jude Law, Larry Fishburne. I will always call him Larry, Larry Fishburne. Fishburne. <laughs> he will always be Larry Fishburne to me. Uh, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. Um, but with the thing with Matt Damon, I think he's been sort of perfecting lately when he's not being the born, being like the every guy, every man dude. Yeah. You know, the I bought a zoo, you know. Uh, nice guy, father, yeah. dad. Yeah. And uh, I think that he works well enough in that. He's certainly not stretching himself by any stretch of the imagination, but your heart goes out to him because how could it not? Well, uh, and yeah. again, I'm a parent, so like when he gets a phone call from the babysitter, you don't hear her end of the conversation. He just yells really quickly, hang up the phone and dial 911. Just as a parent, you like yeah. you know what's happened. You know it's like, oh. And I, I'm not going to lie. I actually feel like that's going to be some of the themes that come up in a lot of these movies is that I feel like the difference in some of our opinions will be on that soul-defying factor that you have kids and a wife, and I am a rather swinging bachelor in the <laughs> sense that I may be less tied to like something, We right? bring different perspectives to it, but that's fine. That's yeah. fine. So I connected maybe more on an emotional level to him as, as a father and uh, as being in that horrible position. Um, there are other characters that we're asked to... It's a very cold movie. In a lot of ways. There are yeah. characters we're asked to identify with, but it is, it's procedural and it's, it's got this sort of lean, clinical, uh, 86 score to it. And, uh, yeah, it feels, it feels anesthetic. You know? <laughs> well, that's the shit is, and for a lot of it too, it's, yeah. it's just talking heads in the sense that it's a lot of dialogue. There's some very good parts that sort of demonstrate how the world around you starts to crumble. But a lot of it was these really dry conversations that were just like, bureaucratic nonsense at an office numbers it was it was numbers and i mean i love i think kate winslet was my favorite i feel like 
Uh, I was more drawn to her character, especially because she's the one who tries to go and 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 work and help and save this, yeah. and then she gets it, and then it hits the CDC and that like whole group that yeah. much more, right? Yeah. Well, and what we get from Kate Winslet, and I think to a degree from Matt Damon, I mean, he shuts down emotionally because yeah. of what's happening to him. So he sort of blends into the cold, steely environment. Yeah. But we get it a little bit from him, and definitely from Kate Winslet, is that she really cares about what she's doing. She knows the important thing is. And yes, spoiler, once she's diagnosed, the first thing she does is contact everyone that she'd been in direct contact with that day to minimize the exposure to other people. And uh, she's in the game deep enough to know that with at this point, they're not ahead of the game enough that she has a sh real shot at living, but she's still, in spite of this knowledge, using every ounce of her ability to keep helping people, which goes down almost to an extreme point to the very end, where she's, you know, giving away her jacket to to the person in the gurney next to her as she yeah. herself is, is about to, to let go. It's, yeah, well, the subject matter is very, very bleak. It's very bleak. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it reminds me, there's a really great HBO movie, uh, and the band played on about the outbreak of the AIDS epidemic oh, yeah. in the eighties. Um, and, uh, there's some really horrifying stuff in that, that I remember that honestly were probably better handled in that movie than in this one. I say that as a fan of almost everybody involved, but there's horrifying true things in that. Like when the CDC first tries to shut down the bathhouses because they've got this terrible bug that may have a hundred percent fatality rate, yeah. you know, uh, but the gay community bands around and says, you can't shut down our bathhouses. We have rights. Don't do this to us. You know, the CDC wasn't doing this vast conspiracy to, to hurt the gay community. They were literally trying to save their life. The tragedy of that is epic. And uh, considering all the bodies I saw in Contagion, uh, it maybe didn't hit me as much. Uh, and the band played on had the benefit of being a true story, obviously. And Contagion is... is uh, science fiction but for the now. closest thing to reality i think that we've got in the crop of movies yeah that we've seen yeah absolutely. Um, and i've said some negative things i think overall this is a really good movie i think it was a well put together movie i think uh for the for the most part if not all of the actors really pulled their weight and they made it they just did a genuinely good job i i don't know i feel like it felt a little dry and like i mean it was steely cold and removed but it was like that throughout the whole movie, there was hard for me to really get involved with those characters. So I don't know. For me, I liked it. Everything was well put together, but the whole movie itself, I'm not sure if I'd watch it like again and again and again. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think most of these movies are not, well, they may not necessarily be one timers where they're just so grilling as to not revisit, but they're certainly not, you know, let's, let's throw in some popcorn and, and yeah. have a good time watching Absolutely. Contagion. Contagion. What did you think of Jude Law's character? Um, journalist. He's like a blogger who's, yeah, gets a, a whiff of the story ahead of the game. Uh, I, I liked him, uh, because, I mean, the concept that, People will prey on people, other people's vulnerability, pretty much, right? And it sort of seemed like he was sort of had this noble pursuit to tell people about the truth, but then he managed to make so much money and just exploit that that like it's it's funny because he becomes the villain in the crisis that like you initially believe that like he is trying to like stop. Yeah. So it's this like it's an interesting journey from altruistic journalism yeah. to you know. Uh, 
basically irresponsible propaganda. Like L. Ron Hubbard, but like... <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting... It's sort of another uh, creepy role for Jude Law. I think he yeah. did decently with it. Um, I'm in the bubble suit walking around the street. I just had a good laugh, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a movie that was low on comedy, I guess he also sort of weirdly served as comic relief. I mean, some of those buttons are pressed rather hard, I think, as far as uh, that character and his precautions yeah. from getting caught. And like I was talking about, the handing over the jacket, as strong in his image as that was. It's a very movie Image-oriented image, Like, yeah. wouldn't it be poignant? Wouldn't this be a strong Oscar would, moment? Maybe it would have just been, like, <laughs> better if they just took Kate Winslet's jacket off her after she died and given it to the one person who already had it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's cold, it's, it's efficient, it's very procedural. I mean, it's professionally done, well-acted. Uh, I liked it, but I think it also sort of keeps you at arm's length. And that... Uh, that uh, takes some of the emotional hit out of it and maybe in that level it's a mercy because the subject is really horrible. Uh, yeah, there's aspects that was terrifying. Yeah. No heart though. No heart. It's, it's happening. I can't believe it but we're locked into it. 50 minutes and counting. Christ, I just can't take it. I can't fucking take it. What exactly are you talking about? I'm talking about nuclear fucking war. Holy shit, that's as old as me. Yeah. This movie was made in 1989, Miracle Mile. It is as old as Jared. Holy God. <laughs> I got socks older than you, kid. As my old man would say, uh, Miracle Mile. Uh, I think it's kind of an interesting movie. Uh, some weird background to it is it was originally proposed as a segment to the Twilight Zone movie. It was just going to be one of the stories in the Twilight Zone movie. Just like a small little yeah. segment? Wow. I think there was going to be a twist as to whether or not the truth of the of the phone call was true or not. But uh, so seems more Hitchcock-y, yeah. right? Anyway, they it ended up becoming too big and they ended up making Miracle Mile. Years huh. later, I feel like they would have done better if they just left <laughs> this is a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll set up this one because I, I I know where this review is going. So, uh, Anthony Edwards, uh, sort of a classic everyman actor, really like a, everybody's a goose fan from Top Gun. Apparently, uh, he plays a man who meets the woman of his dreams and uh, is set up to have a date with her. But uh, due to some malfunctions, some power going out, he oversleeps, ends up coming to the diner way late, and coincidentally catching a phone call. Uh, the phone call informs him from a missile silo in North Dakota, I think yeah, he said, Dakota. Uh, that uh, missiles are on their way to all the major city centers, and they should be expecting touchdown in about 50 minutes. And the person on the other end of the line is very, very convincing. So our hero, our protagonist, is faced with the knowledge that he's convinced is true that the sky's about to rain fire on the city. And he has 50 minutes to save himself and as many people as possible. What does he do? Now, on a premise alone, I think this is a really solid movie. And I think of all of these movies, I mean, I, I, I'm tipping the bag here. I liked it more than you did, but yeah. I would love to see this movie remade. I would love to see another kick of the can of this yeah, movie, uh, too. It is, feels very 80s, and it feels, you know... Which I can get over, in a sense, 
But I mean, that was like the bottom, that was up there, but it was, it was on the list of, yeah, things for sure. But if it was remade, uh, I feel like it has some real strong potential. Cause that's what really anchored me. Uh, it, it wasn't sort of, it wasn't the production value and it wasn't the aesthetic of the movie. It was that central premise, that crux, that horrible position that he's put in. And, uh, that went a long way for me in this movie. Well, and it, it had me at the start. Well, not the first part intro. It was a little weird. Him in the museum and trying to like creep on this like woman with a Billy, like idle haircut, you know? <laughs> um, Merit but... Wingham. Yeah. She's, uh, she's a strange looking woman. I don't quite understand her as a romantic lead or as a character in this movie she's very strange <laughs> yeah and it, that was that was the hardest 80s outfit to to deal with right was that haircut alone yeah but we have to accept the time the movie was made and you know i i can i can put a past thing you know i put up with oiled up saxophone guy in, in lost boys there's there's things that you got to take on the chin with with the period with the 80s yeah, that Goonies like, was perfect. Yeah, I'm not going to give the movie a thumbs down on the basis I didn't like anyone's haircut. Is my point? <laughs> yeah, no, but they had me up until the diner, right? Uh, the concept was really strong and everything was great up until they left the diner. I was so excited for it, and then I just feel like it just flattened out. Yeah, yeah, it is hard. It was hard for me because I was really pumped about it up until that point. <laughs> um, yeah, like the central performance is really, really good, and I think my own my big beef with the movie, although I would still give it a thumbs up overall, is that he just met this woman today. I think if he's going to go on a quest to save one person, and you know, fate dictated that he missed that date, and fate dictated that he be there for that call, you know. Um, I don't think it would be wrong for him to just try to save himself. If it was his wife. But yeah. again, if it was his kid. His kid. The stakes would be much higher. Even his mom yeah, or I someone, would, right? Yeah, I would understand that right away. We would understand that connection. We wouldn't need the clumsy introduction at the beginning of the movie. We would understand his quest a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but like they, they lay it on really thick. Like This movie starts like a John Hughes romantic comedy. It, it's, it's, it's got no narration, and, and it's got sort of, yeah, that weird 80s goofiness to it. Yeah. Uh, and it, once the worm turns, though, that stops. Yeah. I think that was actually really conscious decision of the filmmakers like they they meant to kind of knock the wind out of you on a few occasions and uh, i'll mention them as, as we go on but there are moments in the movie that kind of kind of come out of left field and, and surprised me yeah uh, there's some interesting familiar faces from the 80s too uh was it Denise Crosby? Crosby? What's her yeah, name? I think it was Denise Crosby, yeah. From Star Trek Next Generation has a small part in it. Eli Wallach has a small part in it. Uh, Micheletti Williamson, I hope I'm saying his name right, has a small yeah. part in it. There's a weird sort of uh, neon quality to this whole movie. <laughs> Which <laughs> makes me think that every party anyone throws lips 80s themed now when they have all the neon and ridiculous outfits. I'm like... It's this movie seems to confirm that like stereotype of the eighties. It's the apocalypse. If you the apocalypse takes place while you're global at and, a disco, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's just, <laughs> you almost want the bombs to drop. Yeah, almost. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the, he encounters a lot of people. He spreads a lot of panic, and some question is is raised in him and in other people as to the legitimacy of it. How much of this panic that he's creating is is you know 
for any good cause. We do get our answer pretty conclusively at the end, but yeah. he has a few fights of, of doubt in himself. But in the end, he believes it enough to take action. All strong comments, but the ending, my God. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to go to the ending. These spoilers. There's just a few things I just want to say as far as moments in the film that, that sort of surprised me. There's a, a scene that takes place at a gas station where a, a police officer is soaked in gasoline. Baba from uh, Forrest Gump. No, it's Micheletti Williams. Oh, okay, that is yeah. Micheletti Williams. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, she, or the police officer raises her gun in the air and fires, and just the spark of her gun lights are on fire now i'm sure the mythbusters would take a lot of issue with that but i mean that was a really bizarre shocking moment and we hadn't seen anything like that previously in the film and it kind of took the the wind out of me there's a scene where he's desperately running through a gym uh, asking if there's anybody who can fly a helicopter and just for a split second this beefy, musty person i thought it was uh, Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> yeah appears in the, in the door stark naked just for a second and again, it's jarring because we haven't seen anything like it anywhere yeah. in the movie beforehand. It just seems like just a dude hanging on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's a bizarre, yeah. These bizarre moments that kind of take you, you know. And I, I appreciate it that the the movie kept on, you know, trying to push me off my feet. Yeah, I, I'll I'll give it. It had some effort, and it for obvious reasons. It had more heart than contagion. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it did. Almost to a fault, yeah. And, and that's why I was like, okay. Uh, so, okay, they, it does not end well. The bombs drop. Spoilers for Spoiler Matt. alert, but yeah. Uh, and he was not quite able to get his love out of the city. They're in a helicopter, yeah. which crashes, ironically, into the tar pits. And yes. they start to, to sink as the world around them is exploding and crashing. And they have an exchange. And the exchange about diamonds, my God, that was so painful to watch <laughs> because I was like, you know, they're all looking into each other's eyes saying they're going to become diamonds someday and people are going to discover them. And it's where they first met. There's this sort of yeah. key. I, I felt like I was like anything I wanted to root for that was in brilliant in the middle of it uh, ended for me when they came full circle to the start of the movie. The, it's bookended because it's true they did meet by the tar pits and they did end by the tar pits and technically speaking they would be preserved much like other things that would die in the tar pits would so in theory you know if somebody could dig them up but it was a romantic gesture and it was pretty heavy-handed but the situation that they were in was was pretty incredible and how do you comfort somebody else when you should how do you comfort yourself you are facing death directly in the face and it may come quick it may come slow but it's there and uh it it, it didn't bother me i've i've seen i've had much worse heavy-handed stuff uh and the way the movie started with that really high shrill romantic you know that's the way it tried yeah. to end but uh, it started like a john hughes movie and it ended closer to david lynch and like that's an interesting arc for me not every movie will do that for me <laughs> yeah. you know uh it bothers me more it's like cheesy dialogue like this like the abyss james cameron's abyss the, he the should not write dialogue the ever. director's cut of that like somewhere between the director's cut and the original there's a great film but there's a scene where there's a very similar very cheesy exchange about two candles in the dark 
you know, there was one candle, then you lit another one and said, that was you. And there's tearful dialogue and it kills everything that, you know, set up that moment and everything that comes after it because of the just how shrilly they hit that note. And I think that's how Miracle Mile's note hit you. But for me, the whole movie was weirdly discordant and off key. So to end on that sort of weirdly discordant off key was in keeping with what preceded, I guess. Yeah. No, and that's the thing is it just, it felt a little off kilter, which I was okay with. But that love story. And once again, like you said, he kept saying, Oh, it's the love of my life, the love of my life. He met her at a museum for a day. And then the whole movie, he jumps out to save her and abandons what could have been an amazing epic action movie about a group of individuals who have never met before in their entire life, but are now banding together to get out of the city so that they can, like, survive. I feel like the moment he jumped out of it, another movie drove off with those people oh, in yeah. that van. You wanted to stay in the van. I wanted him to stay in the van, uh, if, which was one of those chapter books where it's pick your own adventure, <laughs> right? If they made a copy where I could pick that every time. Let's you and I acquire the rights to this and remake it. I because, think so. again, I think that the story here, the central, the central crux of everything is... Uh, I believe the world's going to end. How can I convince everyone else? How can I save as many people as possible? And I've got less than an hour. And the movie kind of plays out more or less in real time after he gets the call, which is also pretty cool. But I do want to make it a pick-your-own-adventure. Yeah. So we can still include the original van sequence with an alternate movie. All right. Well, that was Miracle Mile, then? Yeah. Have you taken a look outside lately? It's like 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's pitch black! You're the first people I've seen in two days. The light. The light's protecting us. Stay near a light source. But do not trust any light other than the one that you hold in your own hand. All right, and now for something not completely different, but certainly uh, I think it stands out from the rest of these movies as being different than, than <laughs> the others. very different. Uh, this is called Vanishing on 7th Street. Um, it's got a similar Twilight zone vibe to it in its concept anyway. Um, really well lit and filmed. The apocalyptic vision that we're presented with here is different than we've seen before. Uh, uh, do you want to set it up for us? Uh, yeah, so it's Hayden Christensen wakes up one morning along with John Linguizamo, who has never been in a bad film they ever. They wake up together. They wake up separately. Separately, but, <laughs> you know, it could have been a scene or two. But anyways, so there's a group of people who wake up and after all the power goes out in a city, and what happens is they they find that they're the only people left in the city and then everyone's clothes are just laying on the floor after this major blackout yes, as the, though they have just vanished. The bodies are disappearing, but their clothes just sort of lay in a puddle where they were. Like these tiny little remnants of like where a person was and what they were doing in their last moment in this eerie little way as they walk through the city and try and uh, continually feed batteries and find uh, light sources because it just seems to be getting darker and darker as the movie progresses. Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's an interesting movie. The director Brad Anderson, I am a big fan of. Uh, Session Nine is one of the Ooh. creepiest ghosty movies you can watch. It's really good stuff. Yeah, and uh, he did The Machinist with Christian Bale. 
and uh, anyone who works with Christian Bale is clearly a saint. So, yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, uh, I gotta like the guy. The, the, he's got a great eye, and yeah. he does different projects. And I will watch whatever he makes. You know, uh, the visual element to this was the strongest, amazing. It the was, strongest, it was part really well far. done. Yeah, out of like uh, like almost all these movies, I just uh, th- that whole effect was just phenomenal. Basically, the idea is is that light is the crucial key to surviving this apocalypse. Uh, the city's Detroit, uh, and um, yeah, Hayden Christensen lit a bunch of candles. I think he was waiting for his girlfriend to he come home. He was waiting for his girlfriend to come and, home. And uh, he fell asleep with the candles around them, and uh, Leguizamo was a projectionist. And, and he, he had a little headlamp. A headlamp, and yeah. everybody just happened to be in a place where they were well lit. Where one, they one woman had the lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so darkness is their enemy, and the nights are getting longer, and the find that their electrical items are not as dependable fresh batteries don't last as long as they should uh, days are getting shorter so it, psychologically these characters are beyond dealing with the fact that everybody they know is presumably dead and that they're living in an empty city have to try and find a way to survive and uh, stick together uh, supplies shouldn't be a problem they're in an empty city um, so the key issue is light and, and that is where the movie fails huge for me because on a basic concept level in an empty city like this light a building on fire have a fire I was, it's a yeah. huge plot point that the movie does not address nope. like they're always depending on their flashlights and banging them when they start to go out no ghost burn that church down at the end what, uh, you could burn a building down at night in a controlled fashion with people organized around it and, uh, you know, you would last a good long time. The fact that fire as a means to protect themselves doesn't come up as a conceit in the movie, I don't think really at all, yeah. is such a huge miss on the behalf of the screenplay that as good as the production value and some of the performances around it is, I can't, with good conscience, really recommend the movie. It's It hurts me to say it because, like... You say the encroaching shadows and the forebodingness of the of the world is really strong, and choosing Detroit because it's sort of a dying city. Well, they didn't right have now. to do any set decoration, yeah, exactly. right? They, the cars were all just on the street there, and <laughs> wasn't hard wasn't hard to find empty neighborhoods to shoot in yeah. and make it look like an abandoned, you know, place. But I I I love these types of apocalyptic movies, oh, and there's yeah. so much going for this movie, and. I, I mean, I feel like there's something that I missed, some essential piece of information that I missed, why they couldn't be doing this. And, and if that's the case, then I, <laughs> if I'm wrong, I will apologize. But no, no, it's it's sure. too much. And beyond that, you don't really have a palpable villain. Typically with survival stories, they'll be, you know, infighting with groups, but there's no supplies to fight over. It's oh. all strategy. And none of the strategy involves fire, and that kept on pissing me off. Well, and uh, in that one point when Hayden Christensen goes to the the car and opens the gas tank. I was like, yes, you're going to like, you know, you're going to torch the bitch. And like, everything's going to go crazy and awesome for you. And you're just going to go around doing like lighting place on fire. Didn't happen. The one thing I also found very unbelievable in this film, and I just, I can't get past it is okay. John Linkuzamo. He's what now? Like 45, something like that. Like he's, he's, he's up there, right? Sure. He's anyways, <laughs> He's working at a movie theater as a projectionist, which is a total noble trait. But he goes down to the the concession, and there's this like 
she's not like the youngest person in the world, but she's this like really cute girl who clearly would have no problem getting any sort of boyfriend, sort of flirts with him. And I'm like, it's either she is fucking with him because he just has this like little gross beard and stuff like that. And he's like, you know, and like, he's just like, I don't know, kind of walks her and like, she's like two feet taller than him or something yeah. like that. Right. I thought it was just like a work crush relationship. I, I thought so, but I just, I didn't believe it. I felt like there was a weird age gap or something. <laughs> she wasn't around long enough for me to care. You I, know? <laughs> yeah. It was just upsetting to me, but the, uh, and the other thing too, is like I mentioned before, it was, it, it seemed like it was a worse off version of, uh, that like a mi- the mini series that I was telling you about, I think it was called night terrors. Where it was, uh, have you ever seen uh, The War at Home, the TV show? No. Anyways, uh, the dad, I can't remember his name, uh, terrible Jared. But uh, he is goes to his father's old mansion, and what he realizes is that any time the shadows in the house touch something, like a pet bird or anything like that, uh, they die. And the life gets sucked out of people and murdered when the shadows in the house touched them. Hmm. Uh, and it sort of came from this notion at the end that the house was haunted by, because uh, it was a plantation house, and that there was all these ghosts that had, like, enveloped into these shadows that in the house, that, like, wherever he goes, so he, this man refusing to leave this house because it's his property hmm. is not going to be run out by shadows. So he attempts to light up everything. And I thought that's where this movie was going to go. Right. Uh, the other thing, too, is when you listen to the interview with the director, he didn't know what the shadows were. Uh, he didn't really have a strong concept. He said he had a couple ideas, but him and the writer both didn't really acknowledge the fact that they were much of anything or that there was a real concept, at least for themselves. Yeah, and that's a problem. It was. If it was just the matter of set line, if they just used the dark, I would have probably just said, okay, it was an ambiguous choice. But there's some times where you actually hear, you know, the sort of whispering, sort of terrible... But tends to be someone else in the... Yeah, yeah. yeah, or, you know, people are, are seem to be manipulated and tricked. There seems to be some definite Mental... force that's yeah. leading them. Um, and when we finally do get to see what they experience, it was sort of equally anticlimactic. Oh, it was awful. It just know? looked like me making shadow puppets on a wall with my hand. Um, but uh, there there also was, though, some of the most strongest cinematic elements in that, in the shadow work. Yeah. Like, especially in the beginning where you see hands and figures and things like that that are casting shadows on walls, or you don't really see them for a while and they're obscured. The It was so brilliantly filmed... Like, visually, it was great. I really wish I would have watched that movie if I put on a creepy play mix yeah. and, like, turned the volume off. It's a and sound just, off kind and of And just movie. watched, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing bad to be said about the production design. And by all accounts, they did this movie quite cheaply. But uh, it looks really good. Yeah. And uh, on a concept level, it's good. There's so many places you can go with a story like this. And this went nowhere. Oh, and, it was just aimless. Uh, again... It's it's the script. Uh, like when characters do disappear, I guess since they get enveloped in darkness and then they're they're closely a pub puddle, they don't really get their uh, a proper death too. They're just sort of a piece swept off the board, yeah. and that's about as much weight as you put to it. You know, yeah. um, it's again, it's a movie I really wanted to like. I like Brad Anderson. I don't, I'm not a hater of the Hayden Christensen the way some are. I don't think Star Wars was his fault, you know? So, uh. No, there's a lot of people to blame for that. No, no. Thumbs down on Vanishing the Seventh, sadly.
All right, let's talk about the divide. Uh, this is an interesting one in, the, in which a group of survivors are in a sort of the basement of an apartment complex. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's a proper bomb shelter. I just think the foundation of the building has sort of secured I them. I think so. And oddly enough, the super just happens to live down there. Yeah. They they happen to have, like, the best super ever as far as... Uh, Michael Bean's character has lots of food and lots of survival knowledge. And uh, he is sort of forced to take in these people in this uh, survival situation. What did you think of The Divide? Loved it. It's funny because, like, what, this was another reason why I was super excited about uh, this topic. But uh, I actually thought it was one of the strongest uh, of the films uh, for a few reasons. One thing, the visual uh, effects and the cinematography were just really great. It started off where you're just really into it. Uh, like, you just you start off and it's happening, right? Uh, the other thing, too, is the the score, the original score for it. I just thought it was absolutely beautiful and it fit throughout the whole movie as yeah. this undertone theme. Spare piano notes. We hear it before, but it seems to work. It's, it's consistent. It's consistent, but like it was that, uh, that one little, like, you know, scale or song or whatever they did for it just really seemed to work. And I just genuinely liked the idea that this one really showed how far and dark we can become, uh, in sort of situations like this and how like we can try and fight that. I feel like some of the other movies, you know, uh, sort of failed at really grasping that sort of depravity that you would sort of get. I mean, contagion sort of touched on it. We have like miracle mile. I'm sorry. Like, I don't really feel like it hit the mark on that one. Well, but, but they had 50 minutes to deal with it from beginning to end. <laughs> that's, that's the real crux of that movie. Well, I mean, I really like this movie too. And I, and I like the spare sort of sad score that they made for it too. Um, but the score is for a deeper, a little bit deeper movie than I think we ended up getting at times. Like, uh, it's a horrendous situation. We keep talking about it. They, like the world is ending. The best case scenario, if you live through this, is that your life is a lot shorter and a lot harder than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. Uh, um, I think that what held me back a little bit with this movie, and most of what I'm going to say is positive, is that yeah. I didn't get a good sense of how much time was going by between scenes. You would know a good amount of time would go by, but you wouldn't know how much. 
uh, like they have lots of food and then they're almost out of food. Um, you know, people are getting skinnier and crazier as things progress. Yeah. Um, and I would have liked a little bit more clear if someone was marking X's on the wall just to give us an idea, you know, of where they were at. It gets obvious that things are getting worse as time plays out. Um, but I felt that their psychological breakdown was really acted and performed well. And the infighting amongst the group, all of that worked really, really well. What I didn't feel in the first act of the movie was the weight of the world outside being destroyed. And when we do get a glimpse of the world outside, uh, we see uh, they're briefly invaded by a medical team that kidnaps one of them. We are given neither an explanation as to who those people were or what they were doing. Um, the movie works best when it's just our survivors trapped inside this prison of a, of a survival area and slowly coming unglued because that's exactly what would happen and seeing that is really horrifying and is where the movie really really works i think it works more on a psychological level than as an apocalyptic sort of yeah vision i'd say that's true uh the one thing though that i uh in response to the fact that you don't really know how much time passed i agree that like the segments for where they slip and when sort of they weren't really separated too much or in a in a way that we could really progress the timeline. Well it's a one room thriller in a lot of ways. Yeah. So and it's the same people wearing the same clothes sort of deteriorating. Yeah. So you can see them deteriorate, but you don't know exactly how much time has gone by between this scene and the next sometimes. Yeah, I thought that was gonna upset me, but it actually was something that I liked about it. Uh I mean I remember reading all these like psych a couple psych studies where it was uh, they did a sleep, the, they did a light deprivation uh, room where a woman uh, researcher, she lived in this room underground for however long she didn't have a clock, didn't know how much time, what the time was, and that sort of contact with the outside world. And what they realized is her days became longer and that like her eating patterns completely changed. There's like a certain level that you change in sort of these really subterranean levels and that confusion of where time goes i thought really sort of blended so you figure it was a nicely. conscious choice maybe not conscious but it uh but i mean it just shows that sort of really quick uh really confusing sort of like deprivation effect and the other thing that i find is is like you know they start off you spoiler alert i guess you see the the world pretty much end. Well, that's the first image of the that's film. That's the first that's image of the a spoiler. Film. Yeah, and I wonder if that's not a problem too. If we if we even had a couple of minutes with these characters before the bomb dog, they really wanted to get you into that bunker quickly, and uh, that's where that's where the movie is settling. Oh, you in. save so much on production value too. Absolutely, yeah, that right? From Why would you want to do three other minutes in another scene? I get it, but I think that. Uh, the journey that the characters take and all almost all of them i would say actually all of them yeah. bad uh their deterioration would be a little bit more filled out if we knew who they were before yeah. even a little bit um yeah well and that's the other thing though too is the funny thing about this film is at the end you wish you were in that blast the initial blast and because the people who survived it had it far worse off because they had to like become that at the end and deal with that. It would have much 
it would have been a larger mercy on these people had they died in the blast because they would have been the people they were before. And in most of the cases, that would have been a very good thing. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the madness a little bit. Yeah. Uh, this is where we get into real spoilers because they start going mad and turning on each other and uh, it plays out <laughs> badly for everyone. And let's talk about our local boy. Michael Eklund. Michael Eklund. Um, he, awesome job. He did a really good job in this movie. And uh, if there's a problem with his character, I would say it's a script level in that you almost immediately don't like him. Yeah, he's, he's a dick, man. And uh, they, they make a point that like, he's bad when he gets there, and he gets worse, and he gets worse, and he gets worse, and he gets worse. It, again, if we would you know... If I would have believed that this was the situation that broke him and made him that way, I think I might have got into it more. But as it stands, he was a dick before the blast, and I imagine he was a dick after the well, blast. What I find interesting is he seems like he's the opportunist of the group, <laughs> more so than almost anyone else, really. I think Eklund has possibly the most uncomfortable role, with the exception of Rosanna Arquette. Yeah. Uh, who, you know... Yeah. They say that... that they, the apomorphous they, uh, a lot of actresses will complain that, that female roles sort of get split down the middle between you're either a mother or a whore. Yeah. Well, for the first half of this movie, she's the mother. And for the second half of the movie, she's a whore. And uh, it's really, really ugly stuff. This is like, it's incredibly heart-wrenching, depressing, and just terrifying. This is a movie I could not watch with my wife. She would be no. just appalled at ah. the movie and at me for watching <laughs> it. You know, um, And like I really felt the ugliness of that. And I didn't think it was gratuitous necessarily for the movie that we were watching. No, story we were told. But I kind of forgot about the apocalypse in the world outside. And it became about this war of crazy people. And... Uh, I, I that was a negative for you. Well, I mean, I knew that's where the movie was going. Yeah, and I don't think the movie makes any bones about it. But the fact that at the end of the day, when the credits roll and you know things play out the way they do, and they're double crosses and triple crosses, uh, I didn't have anyone that I wanted to survive anymore. I was kind of I was no longer invested in anyone's survival. It was almost. The, the tagline for the movie is that the lucky ones died in the blast. And I guess it's a great statement to the accomplishment of the movie is that I agreed. By yeah. the end of that movie, the, they were unlucky to make it into that basement. It would have been better for the blast to have hit them and for them to have died in a few seconds instead of spending these months slowly dying. You know? Yeah. Uh, so it's a huge downer uh that said the acting in it's great i think it's the best thing we've seen michael bean do in a long time there's a scene where he's getting tortured for information for uh, the lock to his little little private stash which i felt he was entitled to as it was his place oh he let he took them in he was allowed to have his private closet oh and when they break into his room i'm like hey this guy has been solid and also he's a wicked crazy temper. So yeah. when you go into his room, it's like the one thing that's like, it's keeping him from boiling over yeah. is going into the room. Where he says like, just don't go in my room. He's sharing everything else. I think it was a fair thing for them to just no. leave that be. He's their savior. And it's his betrayal in a lot of ways that, that bothers me the most of the movie. And I mean, it's meant to, it's yeah. not, a, it's not an accidental thing, but I mean, it does, it, it does, you know, hurt the rewatchability of the movie that it is this 
sort of heavy and depressing, you know. I think in a bleak bunch of movies, this is possibly the ugliest of them all. Uh, and yeah. uh, we haven't even talked about The Road yet. Oh, yeah, I feel like that one might have been <laughs> bleaker. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about uh, The Road? Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Acting? It was great. I have to rate it as one of the top ones yeah. for sure. I, I mean, as this... much as I, it sounds like I'm shit talking the movie, yeah. I'm really not. Uh, we talked about this in a previous episode about the just because a movie is unpleasant doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Just because you're not enjoying the movie necessarily doesn't <laughs> yeah. mean it's bad. It's it, it's doing exactly what it means to do, and in this case, it's kind of making you uncomfortable and making you, you know. Really, really hope that you never have to face this kind of scenario. Well, I think and, it was shot in Winnipeg, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, like, you kind of give a route for it being shot near your backyard, right? <laughs> if you want to shoot something post-apocalyptic, you go to Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Detroit of Canada. <laughs> we interrupt your regular programming for a KDHP emergency news break. Multiple explosive devices were detonated across Los Angeles moments ago. I have just received word that there was just another explosion at Los Angeles International Airport. It's amazing. Another explosion. People are scattered all over the streets. Go home. Go home. Sir, my wife is downtown. I'm not giving you a choice. Okay, uh, change of location, and now we are going to talk about Right at Your Door. Yes. Um, and that stars Rory Corcoran and Mary McCormick, and it's directed by Chris Gorak. It's actually a pretty low-budget affair. Yeah, I was really uh, surprised about that, actually. I think it's definitely taking advantage of the post-9-11 paranoia in the United States. Um, It's uh, basically about a dirty bomb going off in Los Angeles, is the premise. And uh, a couple that uh, seem to be a little bit on the rocks. I think he sort of stays at home. He's a musician, but he's sort of a stay-at-home-and-does-nothing kind of musician. And she clearly pays all the bills. Anyway, he makes her breakfast and she heads out and uh, the bombs drop. And uh, he finds out very quickly that there could be a chemical agent in the, in the air and that he has to take serious precautions. And he seals his house and, of course, his wife returns home. And the essential dilemma of the movie, or the crux of it, would appear to be, is it right or wrong to let her in? What should he do? And, you know the emotional high stakes of that. Do you say no to your wife in that kind of time of need? Um, Would would you? (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, I mean, I'd like to think that I would let her in, but I mean, I guess he does try to find ways around it. Like, he does try to find solutions to it. Um, What did you think of Right at Your Door? Uh, I actually really liked it. Um, It was actually one of my favorites of this whole, of the whole set. It was really low budget. I, I think they could have sprung for a couple extra lights mm-hmm. because there was like there was good moments where there there's scenes where you just can't see anything really going on. It's so dark and grainy and I, I feel like that was just a low budget issue, not really an essential choice issue. It does suffer maybe a little bit from shaky camera at times. Um it feels documentary, but it's clearly not. 
Um, but I liked sort of the color palette to it, and I liked yeah. sort of like the ash dripping light from the air. Well, that was the other thing, too, is, I mean, for such an absolutely low-budget-looking film, like, it looks like someone just picked up their home video camera and sort of shot it, but, I mean, it has some decent actors, and the effects that they put into it uh, were actually really well done, and they spliced them in very well with that sort of uh, video footage. It didn't look as clean and polished as you see with some other uh, low-budget films where it's grainy film, but like a really smoothly looking like mushroom cloud. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no. I think that they definitely made that a really good use of their budget. As did the divide. It was another fairly low-budget mm-hmm. affair. Um, and this again is sort of like the one-room thriller vibe. Once our premise is established, it largely takes place in their in their home. Um, I think it worked best with that dilemma with the two of them with a pane of glass between them. Yeah. And uh, her wanting in and him trying to both comfort her and say no. Um, uh, where I think uh, I, I part ways a little bit with it is the ending of the movie. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's effective, and I would not argue it that it twist. isn't. It isn't. And I think in order to talk about it adequately, we're just going to have to implicitly talk about it. Yeah. So um, basically the overarching story <laughs> of this is that... Uh, during their argument, uh, he sealed the house, and during her arg- their argument, she throws her cell phone and cracks the window. And uh, uh, as he patches it up as quickly as possible, but we find out after the fact that by conta- having a, a small hole, just even for a brief time, and then containing the virus inside the house, All wrapped in plastic, yeah, with a greenhouse effect, yeah, he basically incubated it perfectly so that it would, you know do as much damage as possible and it would uh, be an incredibly dangerous and toxic environment and by keeping his wife out uh he was he was killing himself or was it her for throwing the phone or you know is there any kind of moral responsibility i keep going back to the twilight zone with these movies i keep yeah. making references to the twilight zone well it has uh, those neat little twists yeah there's that always right gonna be the, the twist end, right I don't think this movie needed the twist. I think that the that the dilemma of let her in or let her out was yeah, was, was probably enough. enough. But uh, uh, Chris Hardwick has this uh, joke about Twilight Zone where it should be called "Nice Try, Asshole," <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah. because the twist is usually a punishing, cruel twist of fate at the oh, end. Absolutely. So you know, nice try, asshole. Yeah. And uh, I was so emotionally invested that to have it, this movie kind of end on a note of. Nice try, asshole. Kind of, I don't know. Kind of dampered it for me. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly really, really well made and really, really well acted. But yeah. uh, I mean, I don't have a lot negative to say about it. I just, uh, I don't know. I was, I, I felt mixed at the way it, it ended. Yeah, it's hard to sort of resolve that. And I mean, I find that it was the thing that I found most interesting about it is that little bit of a spat or a fight. Uh, that tension you feel right in the first scene between him and his wife. Before and it's so even real. When, yeah. And like he puts so much effort into trying to find her and go downtown. You can tell this man actually really loves, loves her. her. But it, and that's awesome. But then as soon as she comes back, it's like, do you let her in or not? And uh, the it was the Mexican gardener. Right. Yeah. Right. Who the was neighbor. also, yeah, he was, the, he was the neighbor who was enclosed inside the house with him. Uh, I remember there, I believe there was a line where he was talking about, I was like, oh yeah, like we said, like, don't let her in. And he's like, I actually never explicitly said that out loud. Like right. it was sort of like him, that sort of like him implying that like thinking that, yeah, we can't let her in. 
And it was neat to find out that he sort of brought that up in himself. Yeah. And and when that character ends up deciding to leave, because his words are, he has to be with his wife. So maybe there is a moral to the story. Maybe what the right answer or so the movie is telling us is that live together or or die together. You know, in this scenario, if you're together, be together. And if you're apart, you know, like... uh, I don't know. But then the, the catch-22 of it is... Opening by, your door onto something, like, she's coughing, and oh, she yeah. looks terrible. That's she awful, looks covered like, in ash and yeah, bacteria or She whatever. looks sick. She looks yeah. like she would be a uh, bad she, news. She looks like she was, like, the late stages in the divide. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Do we want to... You want me to comfort you? Sure, I understand that. But do you want me to die in order to comfort yeah, you? And, it, and should I die in order to comfort you? And the, and the answer in this movie's case, I don't know if it was yes or no. I mean, I guess she wasn't as bad off as we were led to believe. And that was the big kind of fuck you twist of the movie. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, I, I It's yeah, I'm difficult. I'm sort of at war yeah. with it. <laughs> no, it's what I also kind of found funny, though, is, I mean, they, he spends so much time using, like, plastic and cellophane like covering the inside of the house and they're they're putting their hands up against the window where the cellophane is and pressing against and it's and to me it just kind of seemed like it was the the house acted as the human condom yeah <laughs> right in that like he loves her but he doesn't want to be it doesn't want to touch her and he's that getting as barrier. close to her as he can be and he is trying yeah. to help her the whole time it's not like he's callously no. shutting the door it's not like sorry bitch you know yeah, exactly uh, and, yeah and, so yeah and going back to that live together die together situation though it's kind of funny though because the catch-22 is it's like he actually saved her life by not letting her in the house Really? Yeah. So, it's like, yeah, it brings it back to what was the good choice in what he did? Like, is it to let her in? Is it to keep her out? Like, he didn't know by keeping her out that he would save her. Uh, Not let her in, he just dies. Either way, nice try, asshole. The, The one thing I did like about the ending, though, was after the government puts over that tent and he exits the house... It had this really neat sort of color because it was those like uh, those hazmat tents they put over houses, yeah. the white and red stripe, and that was the most vibrant and best sheets of color yeah. that they had in the film. Everything else was really natural, but that like had this weird sort of emotional context to it, and he was just like absolutely losing his shit. Yeah, uh, for that, I just thought it was a really strong visual image in in su- what seemed like such a handheld sort of film well and i think his deal was as it would be for most of us in in his brain in no scenario was he not going to live through this right so when all of a sudden precaution yeah he you know the reason he's rejecting his wife is survival based yeah and when the tent goes over and the thing place starts filling up with gas and he sees the writing on the wall it's just yeah and uh, i think it's really really well acted um and you know the movie doesn't let you off the hook really easily it just sort of ends with uh uh, his wife sitting at the back of a ambulance, like practically catatonic, and, uh, and not answering her cell phone. <laughs> the other question I had about it, though, was, I mean, aside from the ash actually having the particles and radiation or bacteria, I think it I think was they're trying to spread bacteria. Yeah, right. it was dirty bomb. Yeah, it was dirty bomb, right? And so, my my main question was, was uh, the Mexican gardener? in the house long enough that he received a, a lethal dose because he was in there when it started to heat up. And then he went off to his family. 
Uh, he never heard from his family. We don't know what happens. But no, he just sort he... of wanders off into the sunset. But, uh, yeah, I think that the lens to the theme of, you know, be with your family. Be, yeah. Do whatever it takes to be with your family, I guess, maybe is the moral. I don't know what the moral I, of this, this I, I, movie is. I do is. wish they would have, like, followed up on it, though, because, his, like, him being with his family could have potentially been fatal to them. Yeah. <laughs> and which true. would have led to that sort of back and forth where you just don't know what's going on. Like, what's yeah. the right choice? Yeah. Well, I guess we can say that it was thought-provoking, yeah, you know. No, um, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's a decent little movie. I mean, um, sometimes you just have to accept the ending you get instead of the ending you wanted. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in, a, in an unpleasant batch of movies, you know. <laughs> it was, it, it, it was, yeah. It was I think the balance here is the most right we've had as far as the romance and the and the level of, you know, tension and yeah. and. and disorientation and horror uh like we thought miracle mile was a little heavy-handed with the emotional and uh the contagion maybe underplayed it yeah and uh, i think this one finds the probably the sweetest balance of the the sweetest balance of the bunch for sure yeah officials have declared a state of emergency What do you think you're still alive? In the world? Not very many. How are you with your Cormac McCarthy? Uh, books or movies? <laughs> Either. Either. Uh, I like them. Uh, I do. The, I haven't read, uh, I haven't read The Road, so for me I kind of feel like it's hard for me to make a comparison. A lot of people said it was a really decently accurate uh, interpretation of it, but I can't really weigh in either way yeah. on that. Okay. Well, um, obviously, to my mind, the two most successful McCarthy adaptations would be No Country for Old Men yeah. and this one, The Road. Um, the writing in it is, is sort of simultaneously really beautiful and spare. And uh, I guess I could say, in a weird way, the same thing about the movie yeah. because uh, it's beautiful, but the, it's, the images are, are horrible. Oh. But they look weirdly beautiful. All the trees without the leaves on them, like yeah. the, the the vast landscapes of no nature and uh, the broken concrete. Instead of looking as, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's there's something about the way it's rendered in this movie where uh, it, it 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 catches the vibe of the book really well for me. Um, the sort of ashy and yet oddly beautiful look to everything. I was thinking about that too, and I thought it kind of reminds me of when people take pictures and they look at a sunset and they're like, that's absolutely beautiful. It's the same with the road if the sunset didn't have the pretty colors and it was these like really ashy grays. No, it's a... like visually beautiful, but this undertone of definite sadness. But it's not, you know, this is not a low budget affair. This is not, you know, the indie. Let's take a black and white photograph because it will be artistic exactly. approach. I mean, the movie at times almost feels like it's in black and white, but it is yeah. not. This no. the color has just been drained out of it. Yeah. The world has succumbed to some kind of cataclysm that is never explained, and it's not explained in the book or the film. If it's environmental, or if it's war, or if it's both, but whatever the case, there's very little supplies left, and our characters, who are just known by the man and the boy. Father and son, basically, 
our tour guides to this wasteland. Yeah. Um, and uh, we talked earlier about how we're in different places in my in our lives. You're yeah. a young whippersnapper, and uh, <laughs> I'm I'm approaching middle age, and I got two kids. And uh, I think what really really sold the movie, in spite of how incredibly depressing it is, was the father son relationship between Viggo Mortensen and uh, what's his Cody uh, Smith McVie? Yeah. Who was in the remake of Let the Right One In? And he did a phenomenal job. That Great job, actor. And he's so Australian. Would you really? have guessed that he was Australian? I, well, the name McPhee sounds. Yeah. But you know, not definitely. I wouldn't expect him to be Australian. But uh, the the they they manage moments of sweetness in this movie, and it, it is incredibly bleak. Yeah. They're looking for any kind of food. They're hiding out from bands of roving cannibals. Yeah, exactly. Every day is a struggle for survival in a very real sense. And yet this has, it's its almost like a love story, yeah. father and son sort of love story. And uh, it's, but I mean, it very, is, I was very impressed by yeah, it. Yeah, and it was uh, like definitely it had some, uh, some really strong lines. Uh, and I hate to, I don't want to misquote, but I think the one line that sunk me just into the movie was, uh, if he was talking about his kid, if he's not the voice of God, then God never spoke. Mm -hmm. And I was like, my head just exploded when I watched it. And I was just like, you know, it's, it's funny. It's just that, I mean, even though I don't have kids and I mean, I can definitely see how like actually having a kid would definitely bring up that sort of relationship. But it's like any of those situations, there's, there's like those one or two people or those few people in your life. That's like, yeah, like if you were to survive with them, but the neat thing about this is this kid was born into this world, right? Mm -hmm. He never had that world beforehand and he didn't, he didn't lose it. He was born to, this is all he knows. And for the way that his mother died yeah. and everything like that, this is incredibly bleak world. And yet this kid still has this optimism that seems to come from almost absolutely nowhere. It's almost like it's innate in him yeah. because his father has lost so much of that over the over the span of this time, and the kids keeps that very firmly. It sounds heavy-handed when you say it, but and they say it in the movie, and it's used both in this and oddly, uh, No Country for Old Men, the idea of carrying the fire forward. Yeah, uh, they, you know, you got to just keep on moving. You got to keep carrying your fire, and. Uh, at the end of No Country for Old Men, Tommy Lee Jones has that monologue about his dream about his dad yeah. riding ahead of everyone and carrying the fire. And both movies are very, very bleak about people who keep going in spite of the fact that they believe they cannot win in the world. Yeah. It's very Hemingway, old man in the sea type of stuff, but in, a, in a, an apocalyptic landscape, which is a little bit more to my taste than and an I, old man and in the And it kind of just reminds me of like a lot of like uh, Russian literature and how it's just this overwhelmingly depressing thing, but for some reason or another, it is built in these people that they have to keep going, yeah. and like you just you don't give up, which seems counterintuitive to me at a certain point. Well, and that's another one of the really cool and interesting things about the movie is that it's the father figure who commits and uh, decides that he will protect and care for and love and teach this child, no matter what world it is. Yeah doesn't matter what the world is i'm going to still be a father to this kid this is a decision that the boy's mother was not willing to make and that's a, a an interesting reversal that was, that was hard to watch yeah but like she basically the character charlie's their own plays 
pretty much implicitly says, you know, this world is not worth it for me. I'm, I'm, I'm washing my hands of it. Yeah. And willingly walks to her own fate. She just walks off into the darkness. Yeah. <laughs> um, and abandons her husband and her kid because, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know. I'd like to think it's not because, you know, the house and the yard and the car doesn't come with them anymore. No. But it's interesting that because, you know, the mother is the voice of God unto all yeah. children. And uh, typically it is this is the mother role who would never abandon the kid under any circumstances. And in this case, no, it's the father. Yeah. He will he will fight off the cannibals. He will go on their ridiculous quest to the coast. What's the goal of the coast? To yeah. see the ocean. Like it's just an ideal. It's a it's, place the a direction. Like yeah. there's there's not a salvation. There's no Mecca that they're no. going to. They're living out their days. Yeah. So um I like this movie. Yeah. I like this movie a lot. I mean, it's it was hard. It's hard to watch, and it's not a movie I can just flip on. And I mean, a lot of these movies were yeah. hard to watch. Of but course, this, this one I feel like I can watch it maybe once a year. <laughs> yeah, and that's how you can tell. I'm like, I can appreciate everything about the movie. Yeah, but I can only watch it once a year, so it's like <laughs> the rewatchability is a little bit less. And I, I'm not sure if I could say that I enjoyed it more, but I appreciate it on such a high level. Once a year is pretty good. Another interesting thing, and I keep on bringing connections between No Country for Old Men yeah, <laughs> and well, The Road, but Garrett Delahunt is in both movies. Uh, he plays this one? in this movie. He's the the cannibal who tries to steal the boy away from him. Oh yeah. Uh, early in the movie, the they only have two bullets to spend, and unfortunately, he has to spend one. Yeah. <laughs> in in that scene. Uh, oh, he's such a creepy. That guy's, yeah, he's so creepy. It's funny, and he's in he's in No Country for Old Men as That's sort right. of Tommy Lee Jones, uh, a, a deputy yeah. or whatever, and uh, he's really good in both movies. It's another interesting connection. Yeah. Um, the horror aspect of the movie is definitely there, uh, and uh, the bitter bitter ironic fates keep on on piling up on top of each other. Well, and I mean, just that moment where you see. Uh, Viggo Mortensen and his son uh, sit and watching as a mother and daughter run out of the woods and get hacked apart by a group of cannibals. It's absolutely terrifying because it's like it's the same situation as them. He knows that's the fate that they would share. It could have been them. It's a matter of timing that it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. and and like if only those like th those groups like met up, yeah. you never really know. It's like hey, like you know, two people like two groups of people just trying to make it, and they're not crazy cannibals right and they just didn't have that luck or opportunity um it's interesting the movie is filled with really small but flashy roles yeah and as a result they kind of give them to some flashy actors you got yeah. your robert duvall you got your guy pierce i really like guy pierce <laughs> uh, uh, molly parker and yeah. what oh this is gonna kill me i'm trying to remember the name of the actor who played Omar in The Wire? He's got the one oh, scene. Oh, I love Omar as the. Oh, it's gonna kill oh, me. I can. Uh, <laughs> I want to check it out, but uh... we'll splice that in here. Yes, that fine actor's name is Michael Kenneth Williams. You can see him in such fine films as Gone Baby Gone, Brooklyn's Finest, The Road, the upcoming RoboCop remake. He's in the TV show Boardwalk Empire. He's in Community. He's really good. Watch him. I'm an idiot. Yeah, but uh, no, uh, Omar just did an amazing job. Yeah, he's got a, a really small and really strong one-scene role. He, part of me was like, you know, 
you've got the book, you've got, you know, this great landscape. Give some unnamed, you know, actors their time, but it is kind of cool to see these faces show up in this movie. And, uh, yeah, it sort of adds, there's, in a really sort of colorless movie, these different faces and performances add color, you know? Exactly, it's, <laughs> yeah, I just, it was definitely one of the strongest movies in this list, for sure. Yeah. Uh, they they end up in a uh, they find an actual legitimate bomb shelter bunker, which I mean doesn't really surprise me because you know America after or during the like Cold War like, but the fact that it was well stocked and yeah. it was such a shame to see if they had to leave, but that fear seemed so real in him. Yeah, he felt it was a matter of time before they were found in there. It was it was they had all the food they could eat, they could live there. Relatively comfortable yeah. compared to what they compared had. To what this they was had or will ever have again. And you find out actually towards the end of the movie that the noises they were hearing were friendly noises. After all, had they peeked their head out, it would have worked <laughs> worked and to their benefit. That is the saddest part <laughs> of the entire fucking <laughs> story. It's just, it, that's like, and it was like, uh, if your heart wasn't broken at that point, making yeah. that realization just. It's a theme of you. this movie. It's a theme of all of the movies. But oh, cruel fate, it's, cruel it's, fate. It is hard to de- it is hard to just deal with and hack that though. <laughs> um, yeah, is it a happy, cheery movie? No, but is it a well-made one? Absolutely, extremely well. Yeah. yeah, big, big thumbs up on the road. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess that means it's that time we have watched six of the most depressing and awful movies of all time. And yet, for some uh, reason, I'm still optimistic. Here we are with big <laughs> smiles. Uh, Jared, rank and review of these movies on Plagues and Apocalypse. Where'd, where'd they go? Okay. Uh, movie hidden the absolute bottom of the rung was Vanishing on 7th Street. I really don't feel like there's much need for explanation. It was just... Very well, a terrible movie all around. Uh, the visual effects were great. It had the potential to be really awesome. I, I say that loosely, but just an awful, awful movie. All right. Um, second up from that, we have Miracle Mile. Uh, once again, I mean, I, I'm fine with movies in the decades being a little bit dated, and I kind of have this nostalgia where I just appreciate that sort of dated look to it. But I was up into that movie, and I was excited about it, up until he jumped out of the van uh, as they were speeding away. I think He abandoned mis- the movie you were liking at they, that point. Yeah, yeah. They, they abandoned the movie and entered in a movie that I absolutely hated after that point in time. Yeah. Um, after that, we have Contagion. Uh, it was well made. There was good actors. I just felt like it really sort of, you know, monotoned and underplayed, like so much and it just sort of held back uh the fear was real and really well done but i just can't really say it was one of my absolute favorites um from there we go to right at your door i think it was just a really well made uh low budget film the effects were great the acting was great uh they seemed to be able to do a lot with a decently little budget um and i really appreciated that sort of creativity in that sort of story uh, after that, we have The Divide with our boy, Muck Leckland. Woo! Local boy! I, local boy, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, the 
I mean, everything from the score to just the visual appeal to it, uh, the acting was extremely well done. And one of the things that I appreciate about this movie that a lot of these didn't quite touch on was um, how these events can really bring people back into uh, these really primal states and bring out a lot of the darkness. I mean, there's a lot in these movies, but I feel like this best highlighted that aspect of it. But number one, I think I have to go with The Road. I'm not saying that it was the one I enjoyed the most, but I think it was all in all the best film of them. Uh, acting, cinematography, just uh, absolutely heart-wrenching and depressing. It depressed me beyond any possible means, but I still think it was the strongest. Yeah. We're close. We're very close. <laughs> I bet, we're, <laughs> we're I bet it's close. Miracle Mile switch, isn't <laughs> it? The, yeah, um, I like Miracle Mile more than, more than you did. What can I say? Um, yeah. This is an unpleasant bunch of movies. Clearly, the subject matter is harsh. The world is ending, you know. Yeah. Um, and the bottom of list number six, Vanishing on 7th Street, I find it guilty of a deeply <laughs> flawed premise and, uh, you know, a waste of great talent and opportunity. Yeah, and my time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but other than that, I liked, genuinely would give thumbs up to all the rest of the movies. And to like five out of the six of these movies is pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Um, but, uh, number five for me would actually be right at your door. Um, I'm, I like the movie yeah, again. Like I said, enough. I like all of the movies. It's yeah. just the, the, that last twist, that last little twilight zone yeah. twist at the end. Uh, and you know, they're trying to leave you unsettled. They're trying to leave you thinking and they do, yeah. but, uh, it just wasn't as satisfying for me as, I wanted it to be. Yeah. (laughs) Never the movie you wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For me personally. Yeah. Number four, Miracle Mile. Um, Yeah, it has its problems. It's set in the 80s. The production and design, you know, screams lower budget. I still, Uh, I still like that. But the the script is ambitious. I love, I love sort of the central problem that our character has to try and solve. And yeah, uh, it, it worked enough for me. Number three is Contagion. Steven Soderbergh is not going to make an unwatchable movie. You know, <laughs> it's always going to look good. He's always going to bring a good cast. Um, it is a little bit cold and a little bit medical, but like yeah. I said, maybe that detachment helped us sort of actually examine the topic instead of just being emotionally kind of crushed by it. Yeah, which is what happens in my number two pick, The Divide. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I really do like the divide. I know in the review yeah. it sounded like I was being really hard on it. I'm, I'm hardest on the ones that I love in a lot of exactly. ways. Uh, the 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 things that are wrong with it sort of spoke out louder because everything else was so good, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, as as depressing as the subject of all of these movies were, I found this one the the most bitter pill. I really did. The Road absolutely is the best of all of these movies, and I think pretty handily. I think right away with these six movies, the number one and number six kind of announced themselves to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, even though it is as hopeless and as downward as everything else we've seen in their aimless quest for the coast, that relationship, that father-son relationship, and that you know perhaps crazed ability that some people seem to have to keep going when there is in this case literally no reason to uh it's a beautiful and awful movie and uh that's why it's my favorite of those 
Oh, fair enough. <laughs> it's the second annual Cherries. I, I, I wrote out some nominations and I'll let you give out the award. How does that sound? All right. All right. It's exciting. All right. For the best nutcase of these six films, your choices are Garrett Delahunt from The Road as the cannibal, creepy, almost maybe pedophile dude. And we have uh, our homeboy, Michael Eklund, Woo! from The Divide. And we have Mayor Winningham <laughs> from Miracle Mile. <laughs> yeah. Of those three performances, who was the best nutcase? I want to give it to Michael Eklund. Michael Eklund. He's won his first cherry. Yeah, That's going to be very Jerry. exciting well, for we him. We can tell him on Saturday. <laughs> yes, yes. We have a chance we might actually be able to, tell, to give him his award in person. <laughs> Uh, the best death of these six movies, your nominees are Gwyneth Paltrow for Contagion, Rory Corcoran for Right at Your Door, or Michael Eklund once again for The Divide. Uh, this one was a really tough one because I really thought Gwyneth Paltrow should die yeah. for cheating on her husband when he's such a nice guy. But I still feel like Michael Eklund has to get this other one because the best death with the tin can slid across the throat. Yes, very ugly. I would like to give special props to Gwyneth Paltrow. I thought she died very well, but these Jerry's are yours. And Michael Eklund is the first, first double time winner. double winner of the Jerry's. Wow. This is a great night for him. Wow, congratulations, Michael. Okay, for what the fuck moments, I have written the... Uh, First morning and plane crash in Vanishing on 7th Street. Uh, um, the diamonds scene at the end of Miracle Mile, where they discuss how they are diamonds, or maybe they will be found like diamonds. And uh, also for what the fuck moment, Jude Law's plague suit. In <laughs> the bubble suit's pretty awesome. Ah... <laughs> uh... <laughs> Oh this god! What the fuck? You know, it's funny. At first, I thought it would be Miracle Mile because I was super like, "What the fuck?" But then I realized a lot of the parts in that movie, I was like, "What the fuck?" So after a while, I just assumed that the whole movie was a "What the fuck" moment. It's sort of a "What the fuck" kind of movie. Yeah, but I, I just watching Jude Law in that bubble suit with his little leg, his little arms, and he's sort of just bobbling along. Yeah. It's. In he a very straight movie, it's a very silly moment. Absolutely, I think he has to win it. Congratulations to Jude Law. We'll have to send him an email or something. Yeah, absolutely. All right, finest performance in all six of these movies. We have Viggo Mortensen in The Road. We didn't talk a lot about his performance. It was very it was, good. It was very, very phenomenal. We've got Anthony Edwards in Miracle Mile. And whatever problems you have with the movie, I don't uh, think No, it's... I don't have problems with the acting necessarily. It's yeah. Except for haircut. Uh, I gave it to Mary McCormick for a fairly difficult role in uh, Right at Your Door. Yeah, that was a that was a good performance. So uh, those are the three nominees. Who is the for second annual? Well, I guess this is the first. This is the first best performer uh, oh, Jerry I, ever given out. I feel very distinguished. So the first best performer Jerry Jerry goes to. Uh, Viggo Mortensen. Viggo Mortensen. I don't think anyone could make a strong argument what against it. What a dreamy it. list of winners we have here. <laughs> we have two Ecklunds <laughs> and Viggo Mortensen. I just need them in, like, the same movie. The Michael Eklund twins. Viggo <laughs> Mortensen. Yeah, no, Jude Law. Jude Law. Jude Law. That would be... I would pay to see whatever movie those men put together. Yep. If they make a movie, we will watch it. Especially and it will win have, a lot of charities. Especially if they had, like, two Michael Ecklunds in it, right? <laughs> 
They they need to remake Multiplicity. That's with Michael <laughs> Ackland. Do it, Hollywood. If you are interested in writing Rank and Review, you can do so at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. Yeah, feel free to let me know what I got right, what I got wrong. You know, send me your rankings of the movies. Send me some candid photography, whatever you'd like. Um, I'd be happy to, to see it, and I'd uh, just like to know that there's somebody out there listening. Um, thank you very much for listening to Rank and Review.